Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. The sort of stuff we did was, uh, once again, working with the SAS, where you, you'd have to arrive in the middle of the night at a, a 3,000 foot dirt strip um, with the only lights were a couple of siloom sticks put down each side of the, the runway by the SAS guys coming in where you had to no lights and land in a 200 foot zone within that first 500 feet otherwise uh, your landing performance was not valid you wouldn't pull up in time so you had to touch down you had to concentrate on these couple of tiny specks of light out in the middle of the outback Australia no landing lights and, and land come in and do this very quick routine plus or minus 15 seconds and then yeah, the ramp and door would open and either vehicles would go out or vehicles would drive in, quickly chain themselves um, while you set power on the brakes and you'd be rolling as they close the ramp and door and disappear into the night again. QAM volunteer Tony Johnstone there and you're going to hear more from Tony in a moment. Hello and welcome to this episode of Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum, Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills, I'm a QAM volunteer, I'm delighted to say, and I'll be your host for this little conversation that I recorded a few weeks back with Tony. Tony uh, works on some of our restoration projects at the Air Museum, and uh, we heard from his father Gordon a few weeks ago. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that one, it's a cracker. Maybe go back and hear about uh, Gordon's uh, flying career with the Air Force, particularly his involvement with the crash of uh, the P-3B Orion number 296. But today we're talking with Tony. Uh, Tony has, he tells me, 23,000... 730 hours as a pilot. That's a lot of time in charge of aircraft. And uh, when you hear his story, you'll hear a man who loves to be challenged, to rise in his skill set in a particular aircraft, and then when he moves on to the next one or the next mission to do exactly the same thing. You'll hear Tony say that he saw his pilot's license as a license to learn. And uh, that certainly characterises his career in aviation. I spoke to Tony in Hangar 2 on a very busy day at the Queensland Air Museum. There were a lot of visitors moving around. There were workshop and maintenance uh, volunteers moving around. So you'll hear a lot of chatter and noise in the background. But I like that sort of a sound. It's good to know that the Queensland Air Museum has a lot of activity going on, some days more than others. But this was a Wednesday when everybody seemed to be there all at once. So this is me talking to Tony Johnstone. I was uh, born into an Air Force family, so I was born in Perth, but moved away when I was three. Moved around uh, New South Wales, South Australia, Queensland, ACT, in the whole time I uh, did my schooling and education. Um, so I, I sort of I'd regard Queensland as home, but I've lived everywhere. Um, as far as QAM, uh, volunteered, I volunteered. Uh, I was flying for Qantas when we were stood down unpaid, and a, an old mate of mine, who was a flight engineer I flew with on Orion's, Called Pete Scavell was aware of this and he wrote me and said we're, we're reassembling an Orion that had been um, the museum had purchased how about you give us a hand so I, I said yep I uh, came in two days a week and on the tail end of that project helped reassemble uh, the Orion I'd already had the wings and engines where we put the tail and um, a few other things on it it took about three or four months worth I guess mm. and then that evolved then into a few ongoing maintenance items and then working on other aircraft and uh, doing other 
uh, restoration related things here in the museum. My dad was uh, originally a signaller and then an air electronics officer on uh, originally uh, Lincolns and then Dakotas, then Neptunes and he was on the original pickup of the P3B Orion back in about 1968. Ever since I was little I, I don't know exactly why but I always wanted to be a pilot in the Air Force and so that my awareness knowing what my dad was doing and his role in military flying sort of fueled my desire if you like and uh, I managed to do about, uh, I was in the Air Training Corps, which made it all legal. I was dad arranged, I did about 50 hours of flying in Neptunes during school holidays. And How cool is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, weeknights, they'd just have some pilots doing circuits and dad would tee it up after school, I'd race over and yeah. sit down in the radio position and watch the, the flames coming out of the, uh, the exhaust stacks on the big uh, right cyclone engines as they were doing touch and goes and sitting there watching you know, the flying happening in what literally was a World War II bomber you know, that mm. involved. So that for you know, a teenage kid was fantastic. Mm. And I managed to do a bit of other flying um, in Chinooks, Iroquois, Kiowas, mm-hmm. you know, just off my own bat. You'd see them flying, so you'd ring up the, one of the Army officers' messes at Laverack Barracks and say, oh, guess what, <laughs> this is me, Air Training Corps cadet. Any chance, and we'd, we'd go up for the day, up to high range, they'd take us up and bring us back. Okay. So and that for a kid, you know, to do that stuff, it really fueled increased my desire and I knew even though I'd uh, because I'd been an Air Force brat and skipped a year of high school you know playing catch up but I'd sit there watching the aircraft coming to land at Townsville all day military and civil airplanes knowing I had to do the grind and the schoolwork to end up where I wanted to be. You use the word fuel, so you've got abgas in your blood from a from a child. Um, and you mentioned your dad, and uh, we had a great conversation with your dad talking about the pickup of those uh, uh, Orions, the, the the P3Bs, and um, number two nine six, and that incident where it uh, the, the the wheel collapsed on landing, and they had all of that. So we were very pleased to talk to him and hear that story. And it's good now to have this family connection so he can listen to your episode now too and hear, hear from you. So, all right, well, you've got this interest in aviation. You've got uh, some experience with aviation, as a, even as a young, young bloke. Um, and your goal is to be a pilot. Let's go to your uh, time at Point Cook. So then you applied for, uh, to be a pilot in the Air Force. What were they uh, training with at the time you went in? Uh, the CD4 was the basic trainer. It was a couple of years old. I'm not exactly sure when the windjill finished, uh, but I started, I joined on the 23rd of June 1980. So it was probably uh, around the September, I think that year when we started the actual flying. The CD4s, I think, were two or three years old at that stage. I think it was towards the late 70s when the windjill uh, was replaced. So we hopped in and, you know, the only simulator was an old um, one CD4, I think had been in a prang. So they, it just had from the firewall back that bit with just switches connected to nothing, and we'd sit in there and practice our checks. But that that was the closest thing we had to the simulator. Everything was was in the aeroplane, and um, with that big fleet of those out in the tarmac at Point Cook. And did you fly the Mackies? Yes. Well, I look around. I've flown that Mackie we're looking at here, number 72 in the museum here. Um, also flown the, the Iroquois uh, 310 over there down at Firescorn. So yes, the Mackie was great. Um, the six months at Point Cook, when I learned to fly from scratch anywhere solo but we were so busy flat out working and doing study you know at least six and a half days a week um you suddenly you got to the end of point cook and went oh we're going to pierce you know i made it and you get to pierce and after about the first three months that's when you you know you still head down and then you've gone from a, a 120 knot brain an airplane suddenly you're up to a 380 knot brain initially 
you see guys coming in, you're maxed out doing 200 knots, then 250, and then by about, you know, after the first, you do a basic handling test, your brain starts at about 300 knots, then up to about 380. You're thinking ahead of the aeroplane now, and you can put it where you want, and that's when you start using it in formation, navigation, and advanced instrument flying. And then by the end of it, you know, it's you're pushing the throttle to the stop, and it's not fast enough for you. You know, you've really got ahead of the aeroplane, way ahead of it. I heard one of our ex-Air Force pilots say that the Mackie was very forgiving and it was a, it was a great aircraft to, to, to learn in and to get your experience with jets. Yes, and um, they used to, before my time, they were, because pilot's course is basically a, a fast jet or fighter pilot selection course, effectively, they used to do bombing and gunnery just to the side of the runway at piers. They deleted that from the syllabus when I went through, but the Mackie was capable of that and was used at 2OCU for that very thing. Um, so it was quite capable, very forgiving, very safe. Uh, if anything, slightly underpowered, they've said. Um, but, you know, I've never heard of a, a student heavy landing or, or having a problem landing. It was nice to fly, easy to land, you, know, you knew what you're doing. It, the only thing was because the, the rear cockpit was pretty much the same height as the front, for an instructor at night coming in on the circuit, they couldn't see anything. And sometimes the standard brief from instructors was uh, to the student coming in and getting ready to say, either teaching them from scratch night circuits, if, if it looks unsafe, you go around because I probably won't be able to see. You know, I can watch your speeds and, and how you're coming in, but as far as getting close to the ground, they had, and some of them would, would, when they're demonstrating, they had to side slip a little bit so they could see the runway. So, you know, it was a bit unusual for an instructor to say, listen, if you don't like it, you, you make the decision. Yes, yeah. because, um, it, you know, and it must be hard for them in that environment trying to teach. That's one of the few criticisms of the Mackie. The rest of the time, um, very nice, great for formation flying, very stable. Um, but like I said, if anything, if it could have done with just a little bit more power, just to make it uh, a little bit more, you know, easier in those sort of scenarios. So you've, you've, your time at Pierce, uh, you've uh, got your wings, you've got your, what, what was your first deployment then after that? Um, I, put in uh, to go to Maritime to fly the Orion and I got posted to 11 Squadron to fly the P3B, which is actually the same aircraft that my, my father had flown previously. So I um, went over that, did the conversion course and uh, was on the crew and I was, that's where a good mate of mine, Pete Scavell, who's also here, um, we were on the same squadron at the same time. Um, did flying, we did deployments up to Butterworth in Malaysia, we were chasing Russian submarines. Um, doing the whole Cold War thing, which you know, for young guys, was, was there back then. Was it was fairly full on and serious. This is the year when the, the Americans were bumping Russian submarines underwater. There was a lot of argy bargy. We were tracked by fire control radars that had us locked up, which meant all they had to do was hit the fire button. So we we knew, and, and in Orion, you've got limited capability, you can't shoot back. So we were doing ring runs at 100 feet, flying past all these. Uh, Soviet bloc and Chinese combatant vessels that basically could have taken us out if they felt like it. We were doing that night and day and there's a lot of uh, technology involved to do with uh, radar, you know, electronic surveillance and, and counter-counter sort of warfare things, you know, monitoring him and he's monitoring us, monitoring him, that sort of thing. So there was a bit of a, a battle of minds that comes to in that maritime warfare environment. So you're exposed to that and working in real time actually doing real missions against foreign military which a lot of the other roles in the uh, the RAF at that stage particularly the fast jet roles they weren't really they were doing a lot of training and practicing 
uh, practice bombing and gunnery, but they didn't really, they weren't hands-on or involved with you know, potential uh, future enemies. And it strikes me that because this is the Cold War and a lot of this is going on in secret, you know, not, not many people know these things are actually happening, you're, you're doing that and most of the people back here don't have a clue what's going on. There was a lot of that. In fact, there were some missions that the guys on other crews weren't allowed to tell anyone else in the squadron. So we were on one crew and the guys on a separate crew might have been doing this sort of uh, with a support missions for customs, drug surveillance, that sort of thing, which we'd only find out later that what they'd been doing one way or another, but we, you know, we, they weren't allowed to tell anybody else, not even on the same squadron, which even then, you know, we're doing classified stuff, but that's an extra level again um, as far as the, su- the secretive nature of those operations. So yes, that, a lot of that stuff is um, for young guys going into you know the average age. I mean, one crew were flying. I was about 21, 22. I think the captain of the aeroplane was about 24. Then the old guys, the blokes who are like 28 and married, they, they seem so old to us, and, and it's all relative, you know, in that environment. But young guys deploying around the world, um, around Southeast Asia, and make potentially making decisions, flying against you know foreign naval vessels that are. Um, almost shooting at you. So that was a um, very good experience and I was also on what they call a Fincastle crew. They have a f- maritime flying competition um, between Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada and the UK and it was named after um, a guy who was killed on Sunderlands in World War II. His family initiated a competition I think during the 1950s and put up a trophy. So it's flown between those old Commonwealth countries and uh, there's a fly-off within the squadron to pick a crew and 10 and 11 squadron, there's a fly-off between those two to pick a crew to represent Australia. So that was our crew, Sea Crew 11 squadron in 1982. Wow. So we went over to New Zealand and flew against, and uh, the Kiwis won that year. So we, I think we probably came maybe second, but uh, the Kiwis won it with a, a visual detection. The flying engineer looked out the window and there was a submarine. So they put in a, a very good attack. They get points for all the various types of detections. And a successful attack, I guess, is the most points, and, and they won on home soil. So they were very happy. There was a... A lot of refreshments had after that. <laughs> now that's on the P3B. Yes. Did you? Uh, what about the P3C? Was that something you operated in as well? No, I, I passengered across, I think, from Richmond to Edinburgh once, and, and saw the guys, um, and saw the difference just in the flight, particularly with the, uh, the autopilot and a couple of systems. But I, that, I think it's the only time I ever flew in a P3C. Um, I, you know, I saw the back end and the computerised version of what I knew from the P3B, which really was you know, a World War II era technology, but tarted up a bit. But the, the philosophy of that analogue equipment, the way it worked, really hadn't changed. Because, like Scotty says, you can't change the laws of physics. The, the way you go about locating, localising, locating and destroying a submarine really hasn't changed. And the P3C really just put a more accurate, refined, computerised enhancement on the processing the information you get from sonoboys. So, but even this day and age, the, the way you go about it, the physics of it, is, is unchanged. Are you organising a group outing for your club? Maybe a reunion or even a birthday party. Perhaps you're planning an evening event and you're looking for a unique venue. At the Queensland Air Museum, we welcome inquiries from groups to visit the museum between 10am and 4pm and can offer a highly enjoyable experience in aviation history. Tours are conducted by our experienced volunteer guides. Bring your lunch and make a day of it. 
Hangar 2 at the museum is a unique and welcoming space. 3,000 square metres of sealed floor space, undercover, but open on two sides, allowing cooling breezes and ambient light. Tables and chairs located under the wings of our historic aircraft. After hours, the venue can accommodate up to 200 people with chairs only, or up to 120 people seated at tables. And we have played host to hangar dances, birthday parties and even opera nights in the hangar. Imagine performing on stage with the oldest DC-3 in Australia as your backdrop. Contact us under bookings on the Queensland Air Museum website or email our tours and events manager at tours at qldair.museum or phone us with your inquiry. The Queensland Air Museum Caloundra, an amazing, welcoming and unique venue for your tour or event. I love the fact that when somebody comes here they can get a little bit of a tour of maritime surveillance and anti-submarine warfare here with the Wessex helicopter for the Navy. We've got the Neptune uh, 277 that you mentioned and the P3. Uh, and before that, of course, the Ventura, uh, which did anti-submarine warfare. And you can sort of get the tour of the evolution of the technology. But as you say, it's still an aircraft and it's still a steel hull under the surface and it's still uh, the same physics Yeah. So what happens after you were uh, at number 11 squadron? Uh, I um, then asked to go to 9 squadron, flying the uh, Iroquois chopper, which um, I got. I flew, went to there. Um, I did the first squirrel conversion course. They used to have the old B-model Iroquois they used for SAR flights, search and rescue flights, and initial conversion onto rotary wing. They just replaced it with the squirrel. The course was delayed a few months, so I was in a bit of a holding pattern at 9 squadron. But Mid-84, went to fire squadron, did uh, what they call rotary wing basic, learnt to, to hover and uh, fly on choppers, and then we did a six-week course then to convert onto the uh, H-model Iroquois. Just like the one we're looking at over there, um, yes. 310. Uh, it was at A2-310. I did the, my final handling test in that aircraft on uh, Iroquois conversion. So then uh, went back to 9 squadron, and I was flying Iroquois that year, and got you know, saw a bunch of stuff, things like flying, working with the SAS up in New Guinea, training the PNG Defence Force, where they had a little, a small sort of light-on special forces element, so just teaching them special forces type skills, uh, but operating in the jungle environment. Um, you know, coming down through a 200 foot high jungle canopy where you've got a loadmaster, a crewman each side, calling you down, you know, just moving a couple of feet in each direction all the way down, offloading guys and then all the way back up. You know, you, there are your eyes and ears. So the crew coordination aspect in the Iroquois, that's probably as bad as demanding and as good as it gets. So seeing that sort of flying was, was brilliant. And operating um, to the limits of performance basically all the time. You know, you're carrying as much as you can carry with the performance available. So that's what you do, which means it's all seat of the pants, look out the front, hands and feet flying, which is, which is excellent. I mean, you get the best flying training in the Air Force. But then to, to actually use it in aircraft like that, in, in on missions like that. And the difference between sort of the military and the civil flying world is usually in the civil world, you're going just transiting from A to B, carrying passengers or freight from somewhere, unless you're especially doing uh, firefighting or one of those other activities in the civil world. But in the military, the transiting is, is sort of just ancillary. The mission, each time your mission today, you might transit across from Edinburgh to Narrow, but then you're on task, over water, chasing submarines, you know, um, and things like we launched one night 
and the autopilot, the one autopilot we had in the P3B wouldn't engage. So we hand flew across off now and then hand flew eight hours over water, 300 foot at night in cloud and rain and we'd swap every half an hour between flying and monitoring. And you, know, you do that, off task, fly back and land at dawn and you think, wow, I wouldn't even try doing that nowadays, even, even though I'm a lot more experienced, but those are the sort, you know, had the skills from the training you've gotten on pilot's course. You know, you trained to such a high standard that if you needed to do that and get the mission done, admittedly that's peacetime, but you know, wartime, it's even more so that you've got the ability to complete the task effectively because you've been given the tools and the skills to do it. So that was the sort of stuff I saw. We then went, I went to the Sinai Desert the Peacekeeping Force, the multinational force and observers in November 86. And I was there for about four and a half months till we pulled out in March. That was in Hueys too, was it? Uh, yes, all on the H model. So sorry, that was November 85 to March 86. I went back to Nine Squadron for about three months. I mean, I flew the gunship then, the Iroquois gunship. It was great to see that. So I've sort of been able to, I've seen as I've gone through, sort of some of the best of each role and skill um, employed in a, the peacekeeping force and operating, navigating along the Israeli border where you, you deviate more than a, a smidge inside their territory, they just shoot you down and apologise later. So you knew your navigation over a desert rocky area had to be spot on, all visual nav, there's no navvies. Um, operating up at PNG, where we had to rescue the other Iroquois that had a, a warning tailroaded chip light come on and they'd land in a field uh, to, between the coast I think, and north of Moresby. So they called, you know, and HF calls up and said, come and rescue us. We're over at um, Kokoda airfield on the other side of the Owen Stanley Ranges. They called it about midday and said, come and rescue us. So now, during the early afternoon when all the build-ups are there, we had to find our way up. We ended up at 12,500 feet back at 40 knots on max power, staying visual but going between these clouds Build-ups, you mean storm cloud? Oh yeah, huge, huge build-ups either side, which you knew the terrain was higher than you each side. So using all those skills again to and, and manage to weave our way through and find us visually and get to the other airplane and you know do the, the as a maintenance rescue, but you know um, demanding situations you get put in um, and all the roles have the various things, but doing that and seeing that in that era, I um, then came back to Nine Squadron, I did, the, the, as I was saying, the gunship thing till about mid-86 and then went to the search and rescue flight at Williamtown, uh, or the Knuck Pluckers as we were like to call ourselves, and Knuckleheads are a nickname for the fighter pilot guys, so Knuck or Knuckleheads, so we were Knuck Pluckers, um, and that was six months that went out to civil contract, uh, and once again, now that's all single pilot, um, IFR, instrument flight rules, night or weather, on your own, and launching this What's a, a, a very good helicopter, but never really designed for search and rescue. It had a, a flimsy sort of hoist, but you expected to go out over water off New South Wales in winter, and we would practice hoisting, uh, it's called a hedgehog, it was just three bits of wood at three different angles with rope between them, a simulated survivor in the water. And I remember sitting over this thing at sort of hoisting height, about 40 feet, looking out, watching the roller waves coming in above the height of the, of the chopper. So we'd have to pull up and let these big rollers go through, and we're fishing this hedgehog this practice you know thing out of the water thinking here on this you know a small helicopter we could be out 75 80 miles out to sea rescuing you know if a guy bangs out of a mirage you know um that sort of stuff you know that's once again using your skills doing it all on your own and um, a lot of the time you know up till then i've been it's two pilot multi-crew operations there's always someone who's you know backing you up or checking that everything's right but now you're doing it all on your own and that's what that's another level of demanding flying uh, skills required so I did that, that went out to civil contract and I was still single back then so I was a 
prime target to go to the search and rescue flight in Darwin, doing the same stuff for 18 months till that went out to civil contract in uh, the middle of 1988. Once again, flying up to Darwin, top end, we got very good at chasing crocodiles and kangaroos. That your job is to be available and ready, um, but but stay current in the meantime. So, um, so what happened after then for you? Um, from Darwin. Um, when all the, the fun had to finally finish, uh, I put in to go to flying instructor's course, which I did. And we were down in Salem, Victoria. Um, and that, because it was the bicentennial year, uh, the last half of 1988, um, the roulettes were the guys who flew as the roulettes were instructors. So they, every weekend they flew both days and then transited back, had two days off, a day of instructing us, then a transit off to somewhere else, two days of displays on a weekend. So we, our course, which was normally about four months, dragged out to about eight. <laughs> So it was the beginning of 1989, we finally finished. Uh, I did it on the CD4, so we went to Point Cook, one FT, one number one flying training school, and instructing, and, and then, so once again then, um, whereas you thought, each time you think, you know, you'd left pilot's course, you thought, wow, I can fly a Mackie anywhere, and you realise all you have is a licence to learn. So then you do, you know, your first operational tour, and you re- then you realise how much you didn't know, and you're learning, and then as you go on, you learn more about flying, more about captaincy of an aircraft, and then when you become a flying instructor, I found at times, particularly as you, you know, did more instructing, probably at that stage the hardest checkout check flight I'd done was this BCAT upgrade to a BCAT QFI, who do the you know the experienced instructors who do the remedial instruction um, and the tests on students. That the checkout for that was probably the the most demanding in terms of air awareness. So to, to both fly and instruct at the same time. So the flying the aeroplane really had to be a very minor, you know, 10% of your brain power. The rest of it was to, you know, separation in the circuit area and instruction and then identifying, you know, simulated faults in a simulated student. You'd have an, a CFS instructor playing student. And so he's simulating that he's not getting something right, so you pick it up and then do re- remedial instruction. While you're flying the aeroplane and doing all of the thing, radio calls and the checks and things, assuming the student, you know, you'd, um, you're trying to unload him and focus his attention on what you're saying, the remedial, when you do this next time, this is what you need to fix, while you're flying. And I found that, um, once again, you know, your, your, your level of flying knowledge and experience increased again. Um, and that, I found, helped me later. So I did that uh, from the start of 89 to late 1990. Um, and once again, uh, I, I knew, I guess I sat up, everyone... Every Air Force pilot's career, um, some guys got on course knowing that they wanted to go to the airlines. The Air Force was a stepping stone. I didn't do that. I wanted to be in the Air Force. And, but at some point later on, when you start to realise, well, I'm getting close to having probably done all the things that I'm going to get to do in the Air Force, and, and uh, I was at a situation where I probably wouldn't get any more flying tours, and you think, hmm, you consider going to the airlines. So... Um, you start, and that was in the back of my mind, uh, so when I'd finished, as again towards the end of that uh, flying instructional tour at 1FTS, I put in to go to the Herc world to get more multi-engine time, which would, and in that era w- was more desirable from the airlines in terms of employment. Um, but also, uh, that's, I enjoyed that role, that flying, uh, the tactical Herc world. So I went, I was on the last conversion course in 1990 on the H-Model Herc, 36 one, and then flew that... Um, 91, 92, and I was on a promotion list, I think in 1991, which meant um, straight away they said, well, we're not going to utilise you as a, a squadron flying instructor because you, you're going to be promoted and you'll be 
you know, they won't get the payback for the, the cost that they need to put into you to, to get you qualified to do that. Um, but I very quickly um, got a captaincy. Um, I, I was a check captain, an instant rating examiner, and a, a tactical checker. Um, so I could do all those sequences, and because I, um, I had the instructional skills, even though I was, instruct I was running the simulator and instructing guys there, um, and doing checks on guys in the circuit, uh, doing instant rating tests in the simulator. All on the Hercules. Yes. Um, some of those you do in the simulator, some in the aircraft. Um, so once again, you, you know, you're, very, you're now flying an aeroplane, like um, doing the instant rating examiner check. Um, a, a, a structure from CFS will come up and fly with you, and you do an initial uh, instant rating test on a co-pilot, upgrading to captain. And so you're now fulfilling the role as co-pilot, sitting in the right seat, and doing that. So that has to be like 1% of your brain power. You, you do that. You're actually the captain of the aeroplane, so you're responsible for everything that's going on. So you're thinking as, as the real captain. You're, you're supervising someone in the left seat who's playing captain, pretending to be the captain, doing all those things. So you're monitoring them, doing your job, but also conducting a test. We're introducing practice emergencies at, at night and instrument approaches down to low level, circling approaches at night, which are very demanding and uh, I guess you'd say risky. There is a, it's a calculated risk, but it's, it's a higher threat environment with um, outside control airspace, with other light aircraft at low level. Once again, more demanding and utilising all those skills that you developed uh, up till then to, to do that sort of work. And so that was good. You know, it was very challenging and very rewarding to do that. Also the tactical herc flying where you're the paratrooping and airdrop, um, plus or minus 15 seconds, touchdown timings, working with a multi-crew environment, which, which I like, uh, as opposed to the, the single pilot world. And the sort of stuff we did was, uh, once again, working with the SAS, where you'd, you'd have to arrive in the middle of the night at a, a 3,000 foot dirt strip, um, with the only lights were a couple of silume sticks put down each side of the, the runway by the SAS guys coming in where you had to, no lights, and land in a 200 foot zone within that first 500 feet, otherwise uh, your landing performance was not valid, you wouldn't pull up in time. So you had to touch down, you had to concentrate on these couple of tiny specks of light out in the middle of the outback Australia. No landing lights, and, and land, come in, and do this very quick routine, plus or minus 15 seconds. And then yeah, the ramp and door would open and either vehicles would go out, or vehicles would drive in, quickly chain themselves, um, while you set power on the brakes and you'd be rolling as they close the ramp and door and disappear into the night again. That sort of stuff where all those skills uh, that you'd learn on everywhere, pilot's course and, and since, you know, were put to a you know, very demanding precision both in piloting skills and, and in managing that task and that mission. That sort of thing and doing it and knowing you've, you've done it well, met the requirements of that, that's quite rewarding. But once again in the Air Force you get to a point where they say, well, your turn's finished. Um, you're going to, you know, you have to move on and learn how to do paperwork and have a posting in Canberra. I could see that looming. I was promoted to squadron leader and I put in for a job at, at Richmond where you had to stay current on the Hercules. It was the commanding officer of the Air Movement's Training Development Unit. So we put through about a thousand students a year and it was great to be in charge of a unit. Uh, excuse me, we had about 55 staff. Um, but I, once again I knew I'd be lucky to get another flying posting after that because of the way the Air Force works. So I put in, uh, started flying to the airlines, uh, and I got a job with Cathay Pacific in Hong Kong, which uh, traditionally had been sort of top of the pile. Fabulous job, great conditions and pay. 
Uh, unfortunately, I went there on, they introduced what they call a B scale, a 40% reduction in pay, which I didn't know or appreciate before it turned up. But I got a, a job flying the 747-400, direct entry as a first officer. And that, once again, to go straight into a, fly a wide body jet, commercial aviation with glass cockpit to Europe, where I'd never been to before. Big learning curve. And they, they halved the number of training sectors. So whereas before they used to do 40, here they said, well, we'll do 20. If you're up to speed, we'll write you up. So that's what happened. I had 20, up to speed, written up, and uh, yeah, it's flying. So, but only because I had all that experience, it, probably the only way I, I was able to cope with that. And I found there was, at times, things like um, flying through airspace, that awareness where you, you could get ahead of the aeroplane um, and manage a bunch of stuff, only because of the previous experience that you could do that. Um, I was there for 18 months, and, uh, but I applied for Qantas and started with Qantas. And once again, I just went straight on the 747-400 and stayed there for 25 years. Uh, my Captain? Parents. No, you join as a second officer in Qantas because that's the industrial thing. Everyone, regardless of your experience, all starts there. And uh, I really had no desire to fly short haul around Australia. I'd done that. Uh, I wasn't impressed with the Airbus aeroplanes, their design. So the only option was to stay on the 747-400. And about the time I was about to, uh, senior enough, you get in the queue, uh, to promote on top, back to being a first officer like I'd been in Cap Pacific, um, they brought in a ban on vert what they call vertical promotion, trying to force people to go onto the, these other areas that not a lot of people are applying for. And I said, well, you know, I'll stay where I am. And I ended up becoming quite senior. And once uh, the thing in the air, particularly Qantas, seniority is everything. So once you're senior, you, you pick and choose all your trips, you get the choice of when you want to leave. Um, and that can be um, very addictive. And I found that. And um, once you get to about 50 years of age, you sort of, you want to just be able to go to work, do your job, come home, not feel like you're a perpetual, you know, wannabe trainee of some sort. And uh, so I stayed where I was. And I mean, I, I had complete control of my life, which you can't buy. So that I could be home for family when I wanted to. Um, so I stayed in the Simple Simple 100 until COVID hit. And, but I found once again that a lot of the time um, flying with guys, you know, the experience you had meant that you could you could pick things that were going to go wrong before they did. Guys would be fatigued and, and forget to wind in an altitude and you say to them, you'd be ready for this because you you know, you had the experience to know the mistake that they were going to make and you could call it. So I like to think that um, that experience stood me well during that time in the airlines. It stopped overnight with COVID, they just closed the airspace. And even though I was in a position to retire, I was ready for it, you know, uh, mentally, financially, all that sort of thing. There was a, a small, you know, feeling of, oh, it's, it's just stopped. Um, I'll never fly again. And I haven't flown since. That was March 2020, 29th of March. I was on the last scheduled 747 passenger flight in Qantas, ironically, from Santiago to Sydney. And that was it. You know, and that's all, folks. Um, Any regrets? No, well, I mean, when you think of it, since as long as I can remember, all I wanted to be was a pilot in the Air Force. I got to do that. The number of people you meet that, that wanted that and missed out for, for medical reasons or other reasons, I got to do that. I, I've got to fly the Orion, the, like the maritime world, the chopper world, the instructional world, the tactical Hercules world. I've done all these various things from, you know, Fincastle, MFO Peacekeeping Force, you know, in, instructing and then... Um, being in charge of a commanding officer of a unit and, and still flying and, and ticked all these squares of qualifications that then uh, stood me very good stead. Not only was it a great experience, but then for the next part of the airline career, it was you know, sort of walk straight in the door. 
So I, um, it's very hard to, to be to feel like you missed out on, in any way. Tony Johnstone, thank you very much. That's been fascinating. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks, Gary. So that's our episode. Thanks for listening once again. Next week, you're going to hear some updates on some of the restoration projects at the Queensland Air Museum. It's been about 12 months since I talked to the crew working on the uh, Spitfire representation and the RFDS Drover, the de Havilland Drover, and uh, we're going to get some updates from them and also some very exciting news about our gorgeous Douglas DC-3, which is very close to being ready to be open to the public, uh, having had had some major renovations done. So we'll update you on those next week. In the meantime, 7 Pathfinder Drive, Caloundra. We're open from 10 till 4 each day except Christmas Day and Easter Friday. Come in and see us soon. We would love to meet you. Thanks very much for listening. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye for now. <laughs>